Hi, welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. I'm Scarlett Fu of Bloomberg Television. This episode features Bitly's Mark Josephson and Bloomberg Beta's Karen Klein in conversation with Vonnie Quinn of Bloomberg Television. You know Bitly as a link shortening platform, but the 600 million links per month shortened by end user for free on their site also gives Bitly a depth of knowledge about how people use the internet across platforms, insights that they then sell to marketers. This episode is a must listen for burgeoning entrepreneurs who might be wondering what to focus on when starting a company or how to evolve their strategy. You'll also hear what venture capitalists like Karen are looking for when meeting with founders. We'll start with Mark, and we'll get to you in a moment, Karen. So you, you arrived at the company at Bitly in 2013. You were there nearly three years. It was a very you know, tumultuous time, let's say. The company had been managing to raise plenty of money. It was the premier uh, URL shortening company. Everybody used it. No one was really paying for it. And they were trying out lots of different strategies to try to monetize something. You came in. How did you decide what was rubbish, what should be cut off, and where to go in terms of strategy? Yeah, so there were, first of all, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. Nice to see Karen again. I tried to raise money from Karen years ago and unsuccessfully. Um, so, uh, she was probably right. Um, the Joining Bitly, it was a, I had always wanted to work at Bitly. From the day it launched, I'd been an, an active user of the product and of the company, and it was something uh, that I was really drawn to. The product actually works, right? And there's a lot of things that go on in the world and a lot of companies that are built. Um, but the core product has to work and has to deliver value. And so when I came to the company, one of the things that I looked for um, was who was using it and how. And what we saw was that all the underlying metrics were going up. The, it was a tumultuous time only because there was no plan um, and a, a leadership vacuum. And uh, what I saw when, when I looked under the hood was that we had, despite a real lack of effort to go to market and to sell product, we had some of the largest brands in the world direct relationships with them paying us for our product. And I'm not sure they knew what they bought. I'm not sure they knew why they bought it. But they bought it and they kept paying us. And anybody who starts a company or sells anything all you, in the marketing space, all they really want are direct brand relationships. And we had them already. And there was not a plan to have more. And so there were lots of ideas and lots of things to do. But when, you, when I came in, it was really clear that we had that asset. We had a product that worked, and we had marketers who were paying us for it. And let's do more of that, right? Let's not do anything else that goes around the edges there that could be, would be the adjacent possibles. Let's execute on a plan with so what the obvious stuff. You decided to get rid of things like Bitly for emotions. Bitly for feelings. I love Bitly, <laughs> Bitly for, for feelings. feelings. Um, you know that? Yeah, I did. Right? Yeah. There was lots of. There's lots of. We we do 12 billion clicks a month. We see five billion users a month like worldwide. So we know how everybody in the world uses the internet. And we have a tremendous amount of data um, that we can mine and do interesting things. There's no shortage of really cool ideas that we come up with. In this room of 140, we could come up with 280 in the next 20 minutes. Um, the problem is, like, I, when I joined the company, we had raised $29 million. We'd raised $15 million in 2012. And we were rapidly moving towards having no money left. So the decisions were not hard, and they weren't really smart. They were really obvious, I think. Start selling. 
Um, He's being modest, of course. Well, all right, Karen, why don't you tell us then how companies should go about e evolving a strategy when, when they've clearly got great people involved, great talent, you know, a good core product, but no plan. Yeah, I'd love to have you talk more about what the early days were and how you figured out like what to do about the team and then you know which customers to prioritize and and even talk more about like what the communication was like I mean it's yeah. for folks in the room it's really tough to be a CEO to come into a situation especially one that had such a storied you know reputation in the community and had incredible growth and at the same time like Mark said you know wasn't necessarily going to be able to raise additional capital had to start delivering on real metrics in order to you know continue to be a darling and and I think there was even at the time some concerns about you know whether or not you know what was going to be Bitly's next step so I'd love to have yeah. you elaborate more on that thanks uh, you know it was I, I keep learning in my job right and every day I learn something that I didn't know before but one of the first things that we did when we got in and I was lucky enough to have one or two folks from previous jobs um, my CTO Rob Platzer who's, this is our third company together so we come in as a team and take care of this stuff but um, the first thing you have to do is set expectations and just be really clear about what you who you are what motivates you and what you want to get done right so it was pretty clear that I was different than the people who had been there before um, because I asked about money I asked about metrics that, that drive revenue. And uh, on my very first day, I did a presentation for the company about this is who I am, this is what you need to know about me, here's what I expect out of the people who are in the company and that work with us, and here's like, what you can expect. The company is now the most important thing, not the idea, not the possibility, right? For this next phase, it's gonna be driving revenue. And we talked also about like, how companies go through phases and stages and just because you the company is now entering a new stage doesn't mean and you might not be the right person for that stage anymore it doesn't mean you're a bad person right it just means that the, the needs of the company are different but some of the stuff that was really interesting to me you talked about um, communication and selecting customers and there there's a lot of companies that buy everything and use everything and I bet you see in all the decks that you get to look at like the same logos on every and every these are our customers slide right there's some publishers in town that like literally try everything um, but you have to follow the money and you have to follow the budget so um, we have every publisher in the world uses bitly it's great I love them right but publishers and newspapers their budgets are maybe other than the media titans like Bloomberg but other, they're going down not up right so you know, our sales team spending a whole lot of time selling to an Argentinian newspaper. This is actually something that happened. And I knew we would close them. It would take us seven months to close it when if we talked to L'Oreal or if we talked to Pepsi or if we talked to P&G, we could close them in six weeks and they would actually grow over time. So you have to, you have to the, the numbers, if you ask the right questions, the numbers tell you the answer. So talk about omnichannel and how that became your sort of reason for, for being really, and how you how you evolved the product to that because most people still probably thought of it as maybe a hosting site or yeah. you know a URL shortener. This is the this is the what excites me about what's next, right? So the first phase of the company for me was about setting a plan, let's sell software to marketers, get the company like on solid footing, so we got to profitability, and then let's figure out if there's anything to do beyond that, right? Is there any relevance for a URL shortener in a post whatever world that we're entering. And so what's really exciting for me is that I spent 22 years now 
in and around New York City building technology companies for marketers in one way or another. And all of this technology that you're funding and that other people are building right, is supposed to make their lives easier. Right? The one-to-one, -one, the ability to do one-to-one, -one, the ability to target, the ability to send them points and coins and do all these things that actually deliver ROI for marketers. But it's actually getting much harder for them to be successful. And the, there's something that I'd love to spend time talking about because it's something I'm super passionate about is as the shift to mobile has happened, um, Facebook, Apple, and Google control the entire platform. They control from time spent, they control from data collected, they control it from um, uh, um, customer relationships, determining customer journey, all of that. So we can talk about that in a bit, but at Bitly, we have, we, every time you click, tap, or swipe anywhere in the world, it's a link. You don't have to see it for it to be there. It doesn't have to be short. It doesn't have to be branded. It doesn't have to be what you thought of us as. But every time you click, tap, or swipe, you're making a connection to the next step of your journey. And we own that space. So what we're trying to do now going forward is to get our links out of social into other channels, into every channel, and help marketers own that customer experience across the omni-channel. When you say you own that experience, yeah. I mean, is that, is that no, you're, not, well, you're not exactly my, being humble. I mean, you're not the only ones in, in, in the category, Well, right? we're the only ones that are focused on this, right? Mm -hmm. So there, there's no other link shorteners, commercial link, companies that are thought of as link shorteners that are commercial in nature that do what we do, mm -hmm. right? Zero. Um, the, that said, that's not the business that I want to be in. The business that, that, that we own and that is really important to us is that next one. So we, links are in between every step of the customer journey in between every channel. Links are in SMS, links are in email, links are in search, they're in display, they're in um, everything else, whether you see them or not. And I don't think there are a lot of people who are attacking that from a customer experience standpoint. Right? They're looking at them each, at each individual channel to try to optimize performance for marketers that way. I think the billion dollar opportunity for us or whoever can do that is to take ownership of customer experience away from the platforms. So one of the, looking back over the past 20 years, you see that um, it started off, there was, Yahoo was like, they actually listed all the sites that existed, mm -hmm. right? And I'm old enough to remember that happening. And then it was about search and when Google happened, it was all about that Google's gonna kill the world, it's gonna take everything from everybody and it was about distribution through Google. Now it's distribution through social. Now that you're on mobile, Apple and Android control 50-50 of the market and Facebook controls 80% of time spent on phones. And like, marketers have all the money. That's why I think this is gonna happen in New York, not in, in the Valley, is that marketers have all the money. And if marketers, when they realize that they are giving every piece of customer data, every time they do a Facebook instant article, or a Google AMP page, or any one of these new awesome developments, which are great for consumers, it's pulling customer data and pulling customer experience away from the market and ownership. So how do you combat what's already happened? I mean, they've got such a kickstart, the likes yeah. of Facebook and Google. How do you, how do you pull well, you the work marketers with, away? You work with them, right? So part of what um, is inherent in, one of the reasons why I was not sure about the job is like, Twitter has a link shortener. They use Tico, right? And so it's like, oh boy, like, what if they decide one day to not allow Bitly links anymore? Fast forward two and a half years, Bitly's marketing department is a customer of, uh, Twitter's marketing department is a customer of ours paying us on a monthly basis to so like. Why did they switch? I mean, like, I'm well, just they curious. Well, they still, like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean Yeah, no, no, so I know they still use, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm curious as to what extra data you're providing to marketers that's, you know, so compelling to get them to use their leverage with the platform. Yeah, so it's not hard to have a link shortener. 
the, the secret is it's 20 lines of code and any one of the talented Cornell students can probably gin one up uh, while we're sitting here. The problem is how do you do that at scale? How do you do that with you know, insight and analytics? How do you work with Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, you know, global companies to make sure that the links get through and they're not blocked? Mm -hmm. That happens. We spend a lot of time every day working on that. And then because we have global scale, we're able to tell, the, we're able to tell Twitter what their customers do when they're not on Twitter because we see them all over the world. So. Whoa. <laughs> you yeah. have to explain more about that. Sure. So because I'm logged into Twitter and one of my mobile devices or one of my uh, desktop devices, you can tell what I'm doing? No, but every time you click on a Bitly link, whether you, it's a bit.ly or one of the 70,000 brands that we, we host, their branded short domain, and you click on that link, it's a redirect through a Bitly server where we are first party. We have a cookie that we drop, and that's, that allows us to say, we've seen you before. right? And so we correlate all the click performance and all the clicks that we see across the entire world to individual profiles. So they're anonymous. I don't know who they are. I don't know where they are, actually. This is without even logging in. This is if you just do it, uh, the yeah. premium model where you just, yeah. yeah. It's not, and it's not about the ones who share. It's about the ones who click. Mm -hmm. It's about the customers at the end of the day. And he said earlier, there are 12 billion clicks a month, yeah, right? Yeah, 12 billion. That's pretty phenomenal. So, and that's, I mean, how does that, to Karen's point, rival information collected by other people? Well, so Twitter doesn't provide analytics around, the, they perform a, some level of analytics, but the, level, the analytics that Twitter provides its customers are to help them spend more money on Twitter. And so one of the interesting challenges, back to my bigger point, is Facebook has, Facebook knows everything about us, right? Like everything about us, whether you realize it, even the stuff that you think they don't know, they know, right? And they don't share that data with third-party analytics companies, right? Like Adobe, Omniture, right? The largest third-party analytics company can't get Facebook data. They won't let them. Facebook won't let other companies measure their performance, and that's a challenge. So what we, we have to do in the way that you combat that is you work with Facebook, you work with Twitter, you work with their with these brands to help. Well, so to help their customers be more successful on their platform. So the conversations we have on a on a regular basis with Facebook is. Hey, we got a call from the NFL, who's a customer of ours, and they're trying to figure out how come the numbers don't match up. And they want to spend more money, but they don't know who to trust. And so we dig in and we find the problem with them and we like help them be more successful. But I'm so curious because Facebook has all this data and we yeah. all know that about about us. Um, for better or worse, Google does as well. How do you compare like Bitly data if you're going into a marketing, you know, um, manager, what's mm -hmm. the sell as to the information and insights they can get from Bitly that they couldn't get, you know, about their audience from Facebook itself? Well, there's two ways to answer that question. One is that the what I said before, which is we see your customers when you use them, when they're clicking on your stuff, but also on the rest of their experience. But the mm -hmm. better answer is that they trust us. Because And you, they don't trust Facebook? They trust Facebook as far as they, they trust Facebook as far as they can, but when Facebook is telling you that your ads performed well and Facebook is telling you about the performance of their campaigns, like and then they want you to spend more money. There's a reason why Nielsen exists. There's a real reason why Comscore is getting bigger. There's a reason why every market needs to be audited. Every market needs a trusted third party to keep them honest. This Have you seen discrepancies? Oh, Have all you, the time. And and what? I mean, <coughs> every every single campaign. Do they all go one way? Do they all go Facebook's no. way? No, they don't. It's you, you. For as long as I've been doing this, you can expect 10% discrepancies in any number before you get curious. Mm -hmm. so. All right. So now you've half the Fortune 100 companies. Yeah. 
And, and, and as you said, people, some, some will try everything, right? So yeah. some, obviously, mar you know, marketing managers are giving you money. They're also giving Facebook, Google. Yeah. Um, you've got what, another like thousand customers or something like yeah, that. Yeah, we have ten million, ten million people use the platform every month. A mm -hmm. uh, thousand are paying. Paying customers. Yeah. So you're you're finally profitable. Congratulations since Thank last you. year. Yeah. Is that growing? Yeah. Well, actually, we're not really profitable right this minute. Just be fair. Okay. We were, and now we're investing again. Okay. Um, but it was about getting control of the business and making sure that we could be anytime we wanted to be. So that's, I don't talk about that a lot. How but and that, the by the way, is, I was going to say, that's a very good fundraising hack is to turn profitable, like, so it, it, shifting it to maybe people who are out there who might be thinking about starting a company. And, you know, certainly as you weigh, um, you know, the market that we're starting to enter into, you know, being profitable gives you a little bit more leverage when you go out for financing right. um, because you can kind of show that you don't really need the money. And yeah. that makes people more interested. So there, there, there are two reasons why we got profitable. One, because we were going to go out of business if we didn't. That was like sort of very, very important. Um, and the second was that that dynamic of being beholden to our existing investors, whom I love, and potential investors or acquirers down the road. Because I don't, in any room I'm in now, I don't need their money. Right? I might want it, but I don't need it, and that gives me the ability to like, it changes the tenor incredibly. You did a seed, an A, B, C, not, under, <laughs> no. not in, in, your, you know, in your time, um, yeah. and since then you've raised how much? We've raised, Another 15, and we've, then we've raised in total 29, 29 and the seed was 15 in 2012. Yeah. yeah, so but this was all before you joined. All before me. Yeah, yep. exactly. So now when you, say, so when you say you needed to show profit to stay in business, yeah. uh, did you raise money since then, or how? We, we've, uh, we have debt. Yeah. We have venture debt. Yeah. Right. So we've borrowed money so that we can that we can afford. Is there a time limit? Are you up against the clock? Because you've got customers now, yeah. but you need them to keep paying and to maybe you know pay for more. Well, so the time limit is much more about like market opportunity and relevance than it is about the business. We have a, we're a subscription software business. We get paid up front. We do one year and two year contracts. We get paid up front, and they auto renew, and we have. 10 consecutive quarters of net negative churn, which is expansion of the base more, faster than we lose it. So like that's all working, but like what keeps me up at night is like how do you build something that's like even bigger and more relevant in five years, right? Like, and I, I spend most of my time, well, not as much as I'd like to, but most of my time thinking about next year, 2017, than I do about this quarter or this week because like we have, I, I want to tell the story and help marketers get control of the customer experience. Yeah. And that's much bigger and than anything we're doing today. And the reality of being a startup these days, as a founder, especially as a company that's you know on a path where they're doing well, you have to. I mean, there's just been such interesting you know platform evolutions that happen. And so, if you if your founder is too caught up into the day to day and doesn't have time to you know think a little bit further out, I mean, unfortunately, that that can be the well, downfall for certain businesses. It's also, I'm not that good at the day-to-day. -day. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, and I would like to be. I'd like to think I am, but like, and I think it's an important lesson to learn also is that like, I always knew this is what I wanted to do. Right? My mom and dad taught me very early on that this is what I was going to do, um, <laughs> to be in charge. Uh, <laughs> but um, I think that as you start something or you build something and you find your spot on a team, like, you have to know what you're really good at and what you want to do. And, yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say, like, as I think about startups, and I, we um, have the pleasure of getting to meet with a lot of startup founders, I always do look for, and one of the questions we ask is, you know, what are you gonna, who are you going to add to your team? Where are your gaps? How can we be helpful? And I think knowing what your true strengths are and, and um, 
leveraging up on those and then bringing in others to support you on things that you might not be as good at or you know might not be the best use of your time makes complete sense. And just clarify, you have 90 people in, 90, in your 90 employee people. and three offices, Denver, San Francisco and New York, right? Yes. So pretty compact and, and small team. Would you be looking to expand that at some point? Yeah, absolutely. We, we've hired 20 people already this year and we've got I had a meeting today with HR and recruiting. We're That's hiring more and more. That's meaningful growth on the employees. Yeah, side. yeah. It was a little freaky for yeah. a little while there. Kind of like to the, from the point once you get from like sixty to eighty, you don't know everybody anymore. I was say. You really don't. You have to get an HR team and you have to start putting in place processes. And is it mostly salespeople, analytics? You no, know, we're fi we're fifty. We're, take out HR like in GNA, we're fifty fifty sales, marketing, and engine engine and product. Yeah. On your point, Karen, I want to go back to that because I, I think it's very interesting, you know, the, 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 the rumors of the death of venture funding and so forth, and we're in a bubble and all this. And yet, uh, Shira Obaday from Bloomberg Gadfly, who will be speaking in a few minutes, <laughs> she uh, did a story recently which showed that, you know, really there is no lack of venture funding. It might even be the, it's, I think it was the biggest year since uh, maybe 2000, or I can't remember the exact year, but a, a, so there's a lot of interesting things in the data. First of all, if you're a talented founder or a multi-time founder with a great track record, you're going to have no problem raising money no matter what the environment is because there's always enough good capital for you know talented founders plus extraordinary ideas. I think in the cases where you might be a newer founder, um, it's a, you know this time is starting to be a little bit tougher. I think the average deal size on the so we focus on the, the first money into a company where technically would is called a seed investor. Um, I also pay attention to Series A because a lot of our companies are now at that stage, knock on wood. And what's been happening over the last few quarters is the overall amount of funding for companies outside of New York has um, has actually, the deal sizes have been going up because people are bracing themselves and trying to take in a little bit more capital. Um, but the numbers are outside of New York again going down and you know the fundraising has started to go down. Now in New York, in particular at those earlier stages, we've been actually kind of remaining pretty strong and healthy. Um, but I think that it's not, un, un, it's not unreasonable to expect the cycle's gonna continue and it's gonna be a little bit harder for new, new founders to raise capital. Now, uh, standards are higher too, that's, that's another reason for it, right? Venture VCs want to see a path to profitability maybe sooner than they used to. So I'd like to say that our standards have always been high. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I'd like to, I also think that we're investing pretty much at the same pace. And, and went back when I was at SoftBank, where I was before, um, some of our best investments came out of the time period when everyone said the, the world was falling apart. I tend to think that the most talented founders, the people who really believe in what they're doing, will persevere no matter what the funding environment is. But yes, um, if you talk to a lot of the other you know, VCs and when we get together, I mean, certainly people are having higher metrics for follow-on. You know, financings, they're expecting to see more deliverables around number of users, engagement, um, repeat users, uh, you know, certain things that would be reasonable requests. And then regarding your, your, your point about path to profitability, I think in markets where funding isn't necessarily um, so readily available, there, yeah, you have to figure out a way to bring your business to profitability. That's just the nature of it. So that's part of the reason why I think New York has also been driven toward finding more profitable models sooner is yeah. because historically well, there hasn't been as the, much funding. This also isn't the first time, if, if we are indeed in a dip, which mm -hmm. I'm not sure yeah. we are, 
um, it's not the first time we've seen it, right? So we saw it a couple times before, and you need to have a company that actually can do something, right? Or have raised so much money, to your point, that you can weather that storm. And so I think that the the what what people get hung up on on the on the rising bar, on the uh, on the bar going up for for funding is that we just know much more now than we did 10 years ago about how to actually build a successful company in this space because it's still so early. Yep. And in your experience, you, you, sold, you were CEO of Outside In, which got bought by AOL. As a CEO, how do you decide to let something go and have it be bought where, you know, it, you know, and brought into a company where maybe they can use the technology, get rid of the underlying company, and, and sort of in, yeah. incorporate it? And, and would you ever consider that with Bitly? Um, well, so yes, yes, <laughs> I would. Um, <laughs> absolutely. But uh, I, I like, so I'm not a founder, which I think is a really interesting dynamic mm. in that. I, again, I let, part of about being a CEO is you think you can do everybody's job better than they can, but you can't, right? And that when you realize that, and I realized that actually at Outside In, when I tried to do everybody's job and then failed. Um, and my job is to return uh, capital to our shareholders, right? That is my job. Like, that is what I get paid to do is to get, we've got $29 million in the company, is to return multiples of that to my shareholders in some way, shape, or form. And what, the conversations that we have at the board level and with our investors is like, how do you do that, right? And what's the right way to do that? And the way that we try to do it at Bitly, and this is my gray hair speaking, right, and learning the hard way, is that you have to build a company that, that actually works, right? A successful company that's growing, that's creating value for customers, that is sustainable, right? You have to have a team of people who are excited to come to work every day, trying to do something and enjoying it. And what I tell my team now, because I get this question at our all-hands meetings, too, are we selling the company or we whatever. And I, I'm, I, God is my witness. I'm positioning this company so our downside is that we're at a company that we love being at that is growing and we all get compensated emotionally, intellectually, socially, and hopefully financially. Again, the best, you know, the best leaders are not looking to be you know, bought. Um, they're kind of going about making it into a real business and then... That's but even I more interesting. Fair, but, yeah, but I also, <laughs> to be fair, right, because this is about learning, right, I spend a lot of my time in front of people who might be our buyers. Yeah. Right? So, like, I, that is part of, that's why I don't spend as much time on the day-to-day. -day. I'm talking to the leaders of the businesses that I hope someday will wake up and go, oh, my God. Well, a lot, a lot if not all of your clients could be your buyers, right, too. I mean, um, some well, of our customers anyway. are mostly the marketers. Um, I think that the, the amount of money that's being invested to build marketing clouds and technology platforms mm -hmm. and targeting and efficiencies for marketers, there's a lot of big buyers out there. On the point about being CEO, how did Peter Stern hand over the reins? Was it, was it difficult? Did he do anything wrong? No. Um, so Peter had left before I got there. He was the founder. He, no, he was, uh, the, he, he, was the he was the previous CEO. Um, the founder, the company was founded inside of Betaworks oh. um, by John Borthwick and team there. Um, and it had gone through a couple of iterations before it got spun out into and then funded uh, in a couple of rounds. Um, I think people like to tell stories about doing right and doing wrong and mm -hmm. good ideas and bad ideas and what worked and what didn't. The truth is, is that the the, tr the truth is, it's really hard, and the gr you know Bitly is a really unique company in that there was literally a one-page agreement signed by Jack at Twitter back in 2009 or 2008 or something that I, can, I should probably find it, take a picture of it, um, that said you'll be the default link shortener for Twitter, right? And Bitly had that, and that just nobody knew what Twitter was going to be then, 
And so it went on a rocket ship. And then you, it, that makes you, like that gives you so many opportunities to dream about what it could be. And I don't fault anybody for trying to figure out what that could be. And they, they tried a bunch of different things. I remember the day they tried to turn it into a consumer bookmarking service, yeah. right? I remember that day when I logged in, I was like, oh shit, this stinks. And the world thought, thought so too, but it's worth a shot. But Karen, to that point, I mean, y you know, Twitter also is having difficulty monetizing. And you know, their subscriber, everyone's talking about how subscriber um, growth is slowing and that's the, the big trend and so forth. And you can debate whether that matters or not. But you know, even a company like Twitter is having difficulty raising money. Does the likes of Bitly have as much chance as Twitter at getting people's marketing dollars? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it depends on what their objectives are, and that's kind of why I wanted to spend more time understanding the data that gets provided. Mm -hmm. And so I think it, it's going to be a case-by-case -case situation, but it sounds like it's a very credible you know, presentation as to why, if I'm a marketer, I'd be thinking about using Bitly. You know, <laughs> as a source, I think Facebook's Facebook's more challenging because they have eighty percent, you know, eighty yeah. percent of the time. So they do know a lot. But that being said, there's nothing wrong with having multiple sources, and well, usually and you find that is that there ends up being you know a few choices. You don't try and be beholden to one. Yeah, and and what's interesting is we have a look inside of Facebook that very few people have. Um, so we're one of the only sources of data that outside of activity inside of Facebook, because we get billions and billions and billions of clicks outside of, from Facebook. So what's a unique insight that no one would know unless they had Bitly data around like Facebook or some of these? So a, real, a very real example is um, a Fortune 10 company. Um, they have a content marketing strategy, and they're pushing out on their agenda what they think is really important. And we were able to show them that actually there were, because we have 10 million people using the platform every month for free, that those 10 million people who were shortening links for free were actually taking another piece of their content that was trending that had nothing to do with what their marketing strategy was. And they had no way of knowing it. And we were able to show them that. We were able to show them the influencers and the people that actually do that. Um, we, Amazon's a customer. Every single link that's generated by Amazon now is a Bitly link, right? Every share button, every Kindle share button, every component, because, like, to your point, there's companies that are a mile wide and an inch deep. Mm -hmm. In a way, we're an inch wide because we care about those little connections. When I say we own that, that's all we think about. Yeah. Right? We're not that interesting because all we think about is that little link and all the power that it can give to marketers. But that's, that's a good like, takeaway for people who are thinking about starting a company is doing one thing really well. Um, that's another thing that we tend to look at is, is the founder focusing yeah. on something that's achievable? You know, a lot of times, um, you know, people see a lot of applications and potential, and it's great to show that, but show you're doing one thing really well initially. So, Karen, you know, Blueberry Beta funds, what, about 50 companies now, you said? 50 small companies? Yeah, so, small so we're, companies. Yeah, we're a seed stage venture capital fund focusing on the future of work, and our customer tends to be um, engineers, and so we posted our operating manual on GitHub, and we do have about 50 <laughs> companies that are publicly disclosed that, they, that we've invested in, and we've listed that on our website. So for all the young people in the room and, and elsewhere who might be thinking about starting a company, you know, yeah. when is the right time, and what should you focus on? Should it be growing your base, or should it be profitability? So, immediately. So initially, when, when you're, first thing you should figure out is, do you love this idea? Like, are you spending so much time thinking that this 
concept should exist, that your friends are starting to think you're a total bore because it's all you think about. And the reason why I say that ha you have to have that level of commitment is because starting a, a business is super challenging. Everyone will tell you these great stories about how you know these companies had these meteoric rises, but the reality is even the companies that I've worked with that have you know ultimately had you know close to billion dollar type opportunities, it never went like you know the straight you know trajectory. It was always like this, and then you'd have a little bit, and then it would go back down, and so but you have to have real. Loving your idea isn't enough, right? Because who's going to love their idea more than the so-called founder? I mean, if you're sending greetings, for example, on text. You know, I mean, that may never be profitable. So loving the idea isn't fully enough, is it? Yeah, I mean, it has to be something that you, I'd say as a foundation, it has to be something you love. And then, yeah, figuring out the right team to attract and the way that having an idea of how you'd like to make money, I think, is another thing. But it has to be something that's such an important problem that it needs to, that what you're building needs to exist. I'd also add that you have to have a bias towards action. Mm -hmm. I, I see a lot of folks, I don't, I, I'm not I'm not a VC, but do some investing. And the thing that that constantly frustrates me is when people are like, well, you know, I'm almost there. I'm almost to that next point, right? And I like keep pushing it down the road. I almost found my technical co-founder. I almost like this next piece after piece. It's like just ship something, right? Mm. And I think that if you have a problem that bothers you that you're really passionate about and you want to solve, like write some code and like put it out into the world. But like I think at this at the seed stage, like just get something out there. Yeah, I mean, we much rather like look at a product demo than a pitch book. Mm -hmm. So if you're coming to see us, like our favorite thing, Morgan, um, who's you know here, uh, who I have the pleasure of getting to work with here in New York. I mean, we get excited when a founder comes in to meet with us, and they pull open their laptop, and we get to see something live as to how customers are engaging or how we could be you know potential customers for their product. Mm -hmm. What's the next step then for Bitly? Is it just literally growing your customer base and getting more and more, more dollars out of your customers? Do you need to do more on the product side now? Yeah, it's about customer experience. Yeah. It's about giving control of customer experience to marketers. And the product, we don't need a lot of product work to make that happen because it's about expanding the presence of the link in other channels. So it's about building integrations into other platforms and, uh, and expanding on the data science underneath that. So, And at what point would you like to be making the next step in terms of either an exit or raising more money or um, have you a five-year plan? Uh, the five-year, the, 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 I'll give you the answer I give to the team, which is um, my job is to return capital to the shareholders. And, sure, but you must yeah. have some kind of uh, timeline. Uh, if I got a call tonight, I would sell tonight. Yeah. For the right price. For the right price, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, I would. Um, have you had offers? Uh, we have. Did Tim Armstrong come calling? I know he, he was the person no. who bought your last. No, no, Tim did not come calling. Tim's actually bought two of my companies. I, uh, I was going to say, yeah, so one thing I really wanted to make sure we got to cover, so as an investor, you always hear about these huge markets, and one yeah. of them is local. Yeah. And so when I, so when I was previously had the opportunity to look at what Mark was doing, I loved him and his co-founder. I thought they were outstanding. I, I had some reservations about how you could get to the path of, you know, I wanted to see people tackle the local market. Do you think it's achievable, I guess is the question. Will somebody break, crack the code on local? Uh, not on local news. <laughs> I, I actually think so. The company Outside In was about local news. And then I spent time at Patch, which you can read a lot about yeah. inside of AOL. Um, and as it turns out, people don't care about local news. They don't. It's sad but true. Um, we had the best engagement metrics of any local news business, any local media property in the world, but it was still like three times a month if you're lucky, mm -hmm. and that's just not enough. So it wasn't enough to get advertising. To no. Monetize. And and the and um, I love what Facebook's doing in local. 
because they're just going to make it so easy. So, so you're saying advertising is only, they're only interested in national platforms? No, um, I think that consumers are not interested in reading local news. They don't care about what happens in their neighborhood as much as we like to, they, they care about it, they don't care about it every day. So you said news, so in other words, they might be interested in local businesses or deals or whatever, but not local news. I think in hyper-local news and information is not a daily habit. Yeah. And, and it may feel really important, but it's not consumed at the rate that drives a really big business. Well, back to Tim Armstrong yeah, for a sure. second. Is I mean, the just because it's in the news right now, Verizon and, and this you know potential deal, is it the right thing for them to do? Should, should they buy Yahoo? Uh, you know, I, I would not count Tim out on anything because he is one of the brightest guys I've met and also like a real uh, real leader and he knows um, he knows what he's doing and he he's got the wherewithal and the history to like make to actually make the right decisions in the long bet I think the market really could use another big company like an AOL Verizon Yahoo because if you talk to the folks who spend if you talk to the big holding companies on the agency side they will tell you that they don't like writing 80% of their checks to Facebook and Google because they have no choice but to spend all of their money. The way dollars get spent is you start with the biggest guys, you give them as much as you can, and then you're, you give it to the next guy, and then you take the rest, which is less than 10% usually, and you divvy it out to smaller companies. And you think a Verizon AOL Yahoo would, t would vie very comfortably with the likes of I Facebook it, or Google? I think it could, I think it it could help. Yeah, it has I mean, a chance. The challenge is going to be integration. You know, it's just, it's so hard to put three different types of businesses together and make it work. But yeah, having had the uh, good fortune to work with Tim and be a co-investor in something called co associated content, yeah, I've seen how sharp he is and thoughtful and yeah. Karen's right. The, the biggest challenge is integration. We looked at a company, Bitly, as an acquirer because we are, we are actively looking at companies to acquire. Um, and the thing that kills the deal is not valuation as much as it is, can we actually like, put these teams together and do something meaningful? Okay. Thank you so much for listening. And be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or email techevents at Bloomberg.net to get invited to future events in this series. You can also watch any of our interviews from this series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.